we're drawing toward the end of that. It's going to be more, um, it's, it's going to sound in some ways maybe like a doctrinal, you know, you might think for a minute, well, I'm in a systematic theology class here and Gerald's just lecturing about God's righteousness. And, and there is one aspect to that because of the theme that's in this passage today, but, but we're going to go beyond that. But we've sung about righteousness. What exactly does that mean? What, what is righteous? What is righteousness? That's a word that's, you know, used some, but maybe not as much as it used to be. I looked at the Urban Dictionary this week. I, I use that sometimes because it helps me see words from a different perspective. The Urban Dictionary defines righteous as containing the best possible attributable qualities. Containing the best possible attributable qualities. For instance, if a guy is a really good or a lady is a really good basketball player, then they have righteous moves. Okay? If you have a lot of cash, then you have righteous bucks, it says. Um, A crazy good guitar player has what? Righteous chops, right? I mean, if you don't play guitar, you might not know that, all right? A guy who is really awesome to be around is Ferris Bueller. He's a righteous dude. I mean, that's what Grace, the church secretary, said. He's a righteous dude. What about, here's one, and this is a quote from them. Righteous indigestion. This might ring a bell with some of you. Righteous indigestion. The act of being so mad at someone else for something stupid that they've done that you physically feel ill. I thought it was indignation, but it's not. It's righteous indigestion. So... So that's so it's having the best possible attributes is righteous that says Webster's defines it as acting in accordance with moral law. But here's the question. Who determines what is moral? Who decides what is the best attributable attribute? Who, who decides whether or not something or something, something or someone is in accordance with moral law? And who are you to even tell me what moral law is? So, that's the question, right? And we believe that the Bible answers these questions. We believe that the scriptures lay these things out for us. So several times in Psalm 119, the writer has prayed for, pleaded for understanding. Okay? And all of that understanding has been directly related to God and his word. That in knowing God better, through his word, the writer would tell us, then we begin to gain understanding. Our understanding of ourselves and of our world is based in our understanding of God and his ways and his character. And so the stanza that we're reading today, the sade is is how I say it, it zeroes in on these attributes of God, specifically the attribute or the characteristic of righteousness. So we're going to talk about who God is today. And, and six times in eight verses, this passage talks about righteousness in one way or another. It talks about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God's word, and a proper response to that, okay? 
a proper response to that. So, so let's look at the passage. Let's, let's look at Psalm 119. At the Sade stanza, it starts in verse 137. Follow along with me as I read. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me, have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Lord, that's our prayer, that you'd give us understanding in you and your characteristics, specifically today, your righteousness, so that we know how to live, so that we know how to look, so that we know how to think and how to perceive and how to respond to what's going on around us. God shows us that this is in our understanding of him. Righteousness is a characteristic of God. It's who he is and what he's like. Righteousness is a characteristic of God's word because Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that this word is breathed out by God. So it carries with it the very characteristic of God. God is righteous. His word is righteous. Righteousness, because God is righteous, righteousness is required by God of his creation. Righteousness is the basis of God's judgment. In in the Hebrew language, the word righteous and the word justice come from the same word group. We have separate words, but, but they're, they're very closely related. And, and it's true in the, in the Greek, too. And so righteousness requires that God respond to sin, that which is unrighteous, in a just way. And he does. But praise God, righteousness also is the foundation of God's saving work on behalf of his people, right? We'll see that. Righteousness is the basis of God's grace. And then righteousness is the call that God puts upon our lives. Because God is righteous, he calls his people to be righteous, which he gives us, and then, listen, reflect that righteousness in the world around us. So, Righteous are you, O Lord, is what the psalmist says, and right are your rules. So in verse 137, this is a description of God, one description of God, one of his many attributes. He is righteous. You are righteous, O Lord. And again, the primary word here carries the idea of being straight, like a straight line. Or morally straight, not deviating from a moral standard. Well, again, the question will be, who establishes that moral standard? Well, because God is righteous, he does. He establishes that moral standard. And so here's the definition. I get this definition from Wayne Grudem uh, in his Systematic Theology book. I'm going to give it to you. I'll post it. But just listen to it because I'm going to repeat it a couple of times. God's righteousness means that he is completely just and fair in who he is and what he does. God is morally and ethically right. And he acts only in keeping with what is right and just. I'll say it again. 
God's righteousness means he is completely just and fair. There's no caveats. There's no little bitty subtitles down at the bottom of the page. He is absolutely just and fair in who he is and what he does. He is morally and ethically right, and he acts only in keeping with what is right and just. I'm going to give you some Bible verses. I want you to jot these references down and maybe just go and look them up yourself and meditate on them. I have been doing that this week. It's been rich. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, capital R, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That was Moses declaring to the people of God there at the end of his life this characteristic of God. Genesis 18.25, Abraham stood before God bargaining with God over the, over the, the despicable picture that he saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham asked him, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's, and, and the implication there is yes. The, the judge of all the earth will do what is just, will do what is right. That's who he is. The psalmist in Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So again, righteousness and justice and faithfulness and steadfast covenant love go together. Isaiah 5, man is humbled and each one is brought low. This is Isaiah 5, verse 15 and 16. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Righteousness is who God is. Jesus prayed to the righteous father in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus is called the righteous advocate by John in 1 John 2. And Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit works to convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. So righteousness is who God is. It's who he is. It's what he requires of his creation. It's what he demands of, of his creation. And his truth, this is where we rest, church, his truth will ultimately, his righteousness will ultimately prevail. Here's what Wayne Grudem says, and I, I just listen to this quote, because it, it, it helps us understand a practical aspect of God's righteousness. It should be a cause for both thanksgiving and gratitude when we realize that the righteousness and omnipotence are both possessed by God. If he were a God of perfect righteousness without power, without the power to carry out his righteousness, he would not be worthy of worship. And we would have no guarantee, Grudem says, that justice will ultimately prevail in the universe. If he were a God of unlimited power, but without righteousness in his character, how unthinkably horrible the universe would be. There would be unrighteousness at the center of all existence and there would be nothing anyone could do to change it. Our existence would be meaningless and we would be driven to the uttermost despair. But God is righteous, amen? And he is omnipotent. So he has the power to carry out what is morally straight, what is morally right. And in his wisdom, 
We, we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God and we rest in that, but let's make the connection between that characteristic of God and what we see going on around us and recognize, as we'll see in just a minute from Job, we don't understand it all the time. This makes no sense. But yet by faith we read in the Word and understand in the Word that, God, your ways are righteous. All you do is right and just. All you do is right and just. You are righteous, O Lord. Notice what he says next. And right are your rules. In fact, listen, listen to what he says in verse 138. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is truth. We'll see this in a couple of weeks when we talk. We're going to I'll preach another doctrinal sermon, if you will, in a couple of weeks on the Word of God, on the Bible itself. And here's a distinction that needs to be made that's pointed to right here in this verse. Your law is truth. The Bible contains truths, plural, correct? It does. But this is not a book that has some truths in it. This is truth. God's Word is truth. As we read here in the Psalms, and we'll see that in other places too. So, right are your rules, he says. Your word is, is absolutely true. Your testimonies, he says in verse 144, are righteous forever. So, remember the word for testimonies in Psalm 119? This is what God says about himself. If God were on a witness stand talking about himself and giving testimony to his own character, then that's what those testimonies are. God is righteous, so what he says is righteous. And it is righteous for how long? For, as, for eternally. You're, you are righteous. Your testimonies are righteous forever. So here's what we see in this understanding of this word. And, and we just have to see this. When we come before God through his word, we are in the presence of him, if you will, in his righteousness, in all of his righteous glory. And his word reflects that righteousness of God. And, and that word is always right. I know we don't always understand it. And we can't always reconcile it necessarily with what we see going on around us. But, but God says his word is right. Right are your rules in verse 137. And it is always trustworthy. Because God is always faithful. Right? And he has established his word. Your testimonies are appointed, he says, in faithfulness. And here's the deal. Look at 140. He says, your promise is well tried. That means it's reliable. It's fully reliable. And, and it can be a challenge. Listen, we know this, do we not? We live in an authority averse culture. And unfortunately, that has worked its way into the church and even into our homes. Who are you to tell me? Fill in the blank. Who are you to fill in the blank? We're, we're in an authority-averse culture. And when we come across and communicate an authoritative word, not based on any authority I or a church would have, but based on the authority of the author, right? I mean, he stands behind his word. And so that's where the authority comes from. And yet we live in this culture where it seems outdated, irrelevant, Certainly unfair, absolutely unreasonable. But the psalmist says, you can trust it 
Because it's, it's been tried before. I don't mean tried in a negative sense, but there are saints who have gone before us who lived in a culture just like ours. That the word seemed outdated, irrelevant, unfair, unreasonable. And there are saints who have gone before us who have trusted in God, held on to his word, and millions of saints through the ages and millions today find it to be reliable. That rope won't break. God's grip will not loosen. And he will be faithful to himself through his word. It has been well tried. We are not in a new day. Solomon tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? We can chill out a little bit because saints before us have gone through the same thing. And God's word is proven to be faithful. Proven to be reliable. And as we trust the word, and here's the deal, as we trust the word and we test it in the, in, in the furnace of life, okay, when we take these words and put them to, to practice, then we find it to be true. Right? I mean, there are parts of God's word that, as I've walked with Christ, and many of you can testify to this, I have, I have grown to understand and see just how faithful God is to his word over the years, time after time after time. And as I've trusted that word, as we trusted in the crucible of life, in the furnace of life, we find it to be true. And the psalmist says that as we find it to be true, your servant loves it in verse 140. <laughs> Down in verse 143, I take delight in your commandments. Even though trouble and anguish have found me out, I still delight in your commandments. That's what happens when we try it and trust it and go through it. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that this word is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So God's righteous word is for our training in righteousness. And, and when this book that is breathed out by God is rightly, and I'll, you need to bold rightly, when it is rightly read and rightly taught and rightly heard and rightly preached, you are hearing from the righteous God who breathed it out. Let that sink in a second. These aren't my words. If by God's grace you're hearing it correctly. It, it's, it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when God speaks, he speaks to reveal himself. And throughout the word, when God reveals himself, we are crushed. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm not alone in this world. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord. And so we, we, our proper response is not just to walk away and go, oh, that was good to know. I'm glad, I'm glad to know that. I enjoyed that. No. So what is our right response? Down in verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I'm a live. That's the only request that's in this stanza. Everything else is a proclamation. Everything else is a declaration of, of truth, a declaration of faith, if you will. A testimony of God's faithfulness. God, you are righteous. Your rules are right. 
They have come out of the well of your righteousness. They've been appointed in righteousness, he says. Your promise has been trusted, tested and tried, and I love it. And, and so all of this is just a testimony of God's righteousness. And then finally in the end, give me understanding that I may live. And so in, in the time we have left, I want us to think about five, and I'm, I'll just throw these out to you, five responses that are proper to the righteousness of God, as, as the writer gives us here, gives it to us here in the Psalms. And the first one is fear. Fear. If Isaiah, the prophet of God, could stand before God and hear and see God's holiness through his word and say, I am undone, then a proper response for us would be because we have the whole counsel of God. We have it all. We have the Son of God who has come and lived and died and been raised. We have it all. It should be fear. God's righteousness requires that he respond to sin from that fountain of righteousness from that righteousness of what is straight and morally right. And God would not be righteous if he let sin go unpunished. Right? We get that, don't we? None of us want to stand before a judge who says, well, you know, I'll do this for you, but I'll do that for you. It's different. No, we don't want those kinds of judges. And God is not that kind of judge. And so the Bible says in Exodus 34, he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means clear the guilty. And that should cause us as followers of Christ to recognize the awful, the awful stain of sin and the awesome weight of sin that Jesus took on himself. And if you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, then by the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm praying that he would instill in you this fear. And that fear may be even multiplied when we see the second point. So the first one is fear. The second one is saving faith. Our response to the righteousness of God is saving faith. And to, and to see what I'm talking about here is the fountain of righteousness, who God is in his righteousness, is the means by which he will judge, but it is also the way he saves. It's the, it's the way, the reason that he saves. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. So J.T. earlier read from, from Romans chapter 5 and understanding the connection between Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus, who is called the second Adam. And Paul here in the first three verses of, first three chapters of Romans, rather, is laying out for us this biblical, this understanding of the righteousness of God that is the very foundation of the gospel. In fact, he says in, in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says, for it is the power of God to sal- of salvation for those who believe. For the Jew first, and then also, he says, for the Greek. For he says in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he goes on in chapter 1 to lay out this picture of the wrath of God revealed against ungodliness, unrighteousness. And then as he works through that, he says in in Romans chapter 2 that no one is without excuse. 
The Jews who have the law, they're without excuse because God has revealed that righteousness in his law. And even the Gentiles who do not have the law are without excuse because God has revealed his character in what he has made. So no one is off the hook. And he says it clearly in chapter 3 there. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow. And then here's what he says. Just so we make sure we understand that by the works of the law, Paul says, no one, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God's law that is righteous and straight and does not deviate is given so we see how straight and non-deviating and narrow is that way and recognize that we can't walk that line. We can't stay on it. There's none of us righteous, not one of us is able to measure up to that standard. So here's the question. Well, if that's what God's righteousness is, and we're called to stand before God in that righteousness, and we cannot do it through our works, we cannot do it through anything, we cannot be moral enough to be righteous. We can't be straight enough to be righteous. So what are we to do? We're to trust because that God is the one. But now, he says in verse 21 of Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction. Remember, there's no distinction. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And he says here, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the righteous standard of God. And then in verse 24, and are justified. Declared right. Declared righteous. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And to help us understand it, he goes a little further here. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. And it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some could say, well, wait a minute. I don't see God pouring out his judgment on David. He cheated. He lied. He orchestrated that a man be killed. And it seems that he kind of got away with that. But Paul says, no, God in his divine forbearance was not setting that aside and forgetting about it. But David trusted in God's righteous promise. Abraham believed God. I thought about that this morning. I walked out early this morning and looked up in the sky. And saw more stars than I could count. And I thought about that. God said to Abraham, go out and count those stars if you can. This is my paraphrase. And so your offspring shall be. And Abraham believed. He believed that God would fulfill his promise. And Paul tells us in Galatians that if we believe 
Abraham just had that word from this God that he had never seen. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the demonstrations of God's faithfulness and righteousness in Christ on the cross. Dead, buried, and raised again, and exalted and raised up. We have all of that. Abraham just believed the word, and God said, One day, one day you'll see that promise fulfilled. And that's what it says here. That God has, has not forgotten those sins. He's not overlooked them. But he was just divinely, righteously forbearing them. Until he could put them under the blood of Jesus. So that he is still just. And he is also the justifier. And that's the, that's the good news of the gospel. That's, that's saving faith. That's our response to God's righteousness. Have you? Have you trusted in that? God in his divine forbearance overlooked those sins in the past. It may seem that he's overlooking countless sins today. But no. He will be just. And he is also the justifier. No one is justified by the works. No one is justified by morality. No one is justified by... What we do, we rest in what God has done for us in Christ. That's our response. The third one, first one is fear, second one is saving faith, the third one is humility. I love what the writer says here in Psalm 141, excuse me, in verse 1, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Who am I? I've been spending some time in Job. <laughs> Boy, that'll bless your heart. <laughs> I know, I know. Why would you go to Job? Why would, why would you spend time there? Well, it was because of this, this concept of God's righteousness. And in Job chapter 40, you know, after all of this long, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. By the way, if you've not watched the little video that the, that the, the, God, the Bible Project Go to the Bible Project website and watch their video on Job. It is seven minutes long, and I've never seen anything that so clearly and beautifully illustrates the message of Job. And in Job chapter 40, here's the question that God would say. Speaking of humility, I'm small and despised, but I'm hanging on to your word, God. Job stands before God finally. And, and here's the question that the Lord had. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And, and Job's only answer was, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. He said, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. God says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you com- condemn me that you may be right? Relevant questions for many of us, even in today's day and age. And in Psalm 42, here's the response of Job after he's been called on the carpet by God. I know that you can do all things in chapter 42, verse 1, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He says... I heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Listen, the amazing righteousness of God that is absolutely right, straight, and true, and that all he does is absolutely right, straight, and true, should confound us at times. 
probably more often than not. And it should result from us just a humility, just a just a humble God. I don't understand this. I'm small. I'm despised. <laughs> you know, a part of this comes from Job's. I mean, from David's understanding of, of how the world sees him as small and despised. But even in a healthy way for us to see our smell, ourselves as small and, and just insignificant in the in the in the big picture of things. And there's a humility there. But then there is also, fourthly, a joy and a zeal. He says, enthusiasm, enthusiasm consumes me, he says. Oh, that God's people would be seen for that. And we're surrounded by enthusiasm, right? I mean, people are enthusiastic about the, the, whatever it might be, their rainbow colors. They're enthusiastic about their, their relationships. They're enthusiastic about all of these different understandings of morals and morality. Oh, that God's people, as, as the psalmist says here, would be consumed with this, with this enthusiasm, just eaten up, if you will. And what is it that causes us to have that enthusiasm, that can call us to be bold and radical and risky, even in the face of opposition? Because we know that God is just and righteous, and in the end, that will be demonstrated for all to see. And it's not a looking forward to a judgment kind of thing, but that's part of it. We've seen that throughout the Psalms. And Revelation is filled with it. Just and true are your ways, O King. That'll be the song they sing at the end in Revelation 15. Just are you, O Holy God, who was and is. You brought these judgments. Revelation 16. And I heard from the altar saying, Yes, Lord, the Almighty. True and just are your judgments. So I know how it ends. And I'm held in his hand. So I can, I can live this way. I can, I can risk living this way. Which brings me to the last one. So there's fear, there's saving faith, humility, joy, and zeal. And then there, there's this last one that I'm going to call serving faith. Our response to the righteousness of God is faith in that just, righteous God that reflects Him. Righteousness received, and I'll I'll close with this passage in a minute from 2 Corinthians 5. Righteousness received should be righteousness revealed in the lives of God's people. The righteousness that God has put in us and on us should bear fruit. And it's a life lived out that reflects that righteousness of God. And over and over in the Bible, the Hebrews in the Old Testament, the Christians in the New Testament are called to act toward others in the same way God has acted toward us. And he has saved us in his righteousness and in his justice. He has reached out to us when we were unable to help ourselves and been kind to us, been gracious to us. And so we are called to to reach out and live out and minister that righteousness on behalf of the poor. We're called to reach out and live out and treat foreigners in our land the same way we treat our own people, widows and orphans who have no way of providing for themselves. God says, my people are called to minister to them and care for their needs. This is the way God has treated us, and that's the way he wants us to treat others. Jeremiah 22.3. I hope you'll think about this verse and use it some this week in your life group. Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Do it. So God says, I am just and right. 
I want you to do justice and righteousness. Well, what is that? And deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Justice, righteousness is rooted in who God is, and it is reflected in his people. The prophet Amos said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So as biblically faithful Christians, we are called to reflect the righteousness of God. And we're in a society today that's screaming social justice, right? I mean, we hear it a thousand times a day if you're listening and, and, and watching. And, and the danger in that is that we will begin again to let society and movements within our society hijack biblical truths and concepts and just take them in crazy directions. Biblical justice is not socialism. Biblical righteousness lived out is not that. You see, our end goal is not that wealth would be redistributed. That's, that's not social righteousness. That's not biblical righteousness or justice. Our hope is not placed in the ability of our government to legislate change. They cannot legislate it, regardless of who sits in the Oval Office. It cannot be legislated. Brother, here's what God wants. Here's what he desires is that those whom he has extended his righteousness through grace is that we would speak and act against injustice. And the whole point of that is not to create a utopian society in our land, but to point people to one. To point people to a utopian society that is to come. When our King of Kings and Lord of Lords established his kingdom, Rayshon Graves is a pastor up at West End Baptist Church in Henrico, Virginia. I've read a couple of things Rayshon has, has published. He put a little article on Gospel Coalition, and I loved what he said, and I'm going to quote him. Imperfect justice now, whispers of the coming kingdom, where perfect justice, eternal righteousness, no marginalization or oppression will exist. We anticipate a day when discrimination will cease, racism will be destroyed, trafficking will stop, the innocent unborn will not be murdered, and individual and systematic abuse will be overcome. As Christ's body, he says, our mouths and our hands express this truth. And this forthcoming final reality fuels our zeal to fight for change now. That's what righteousness and justice looks like lived out. As Christians, we want to magnify. We want people to see the righteousness of God. But, but we want them to see the full picture, church. Listen to this. And so when we speak about and when we respond to our people, the people around us who are crying for justice, we want to point them to our God who is righteous and just. And we want to point them to our God who is righteous and just and has shown this in responding to us in righteousness and justice and not giving us what we deserve. That he displayed his perfect righteousness and justice in Christ. He demonstrated his perfect goodness and grace in Christ. And he acted on behalf of guilty sinners who deserved his just, righteous condemnation. He responded to us in grace. When we were alienated from God, 
under the bondage of sin, deserving his wrath, separated from him, he acted justly, he acted righteously, and he acted mercifully by not overlooking our sin, but placed it on Jesus. And Jesus died unjustly at the hands of wicked people. He, he was innocent. But Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to see this happen. It, it, it pleased God to bruise him on our behalf. And that by his stripes we are healed. And it says there in Isaiah 53 that his righteous servant, through his righteous servant, many will be made righteous. So I close with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn over there and look at it with me. This actually summarizes the whole sermon, I think, well. We've read, you've heard this passage probably a thousand times, but listen to it again. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. Listen carefully. Lord, help us to listen carefully. Everything has changed, okay? Everything has changed. He says up in 14, we are now compelled or controlled, if you will, by the love of Christ. Everything's changed. From now on, he says in verse 16, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Let that sink in. We don't see people the same way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul says. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, in verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, this great eternal exchange, is that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we, by placing our faith in him, might become the righteousness, straightness, justice, Truth of God. And because that is what he has done for us, we're not the same. And we don't see people the same. And we are not living for the same purposes that we did before. Now we are ambassadors for Christ, seeking that people would be reconciled to God through him. And as we do that, we point people to, a, to our God who is beautiful in his holiness beautiful in his righteousness and in his justice beyond anything that our poor, hurting, justice-hungry culture could imagine. And he calls us to live that out for the sake of his glory and for the good of this community. So, Father, we pray for that today. 
Just crush us today, God, I pray, under the weight of how righteous and holy you are. Lord, let us not be content to domesticate you, to box you up and wrap you up in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to us or people around us. Lord, we live in a, in a culture that does not know what right and straight and true are. Lord, even those words have been captivated. So, Father, fix our eyes on Jesus today. Who is your righteousness? And, Father, I pray that today, again, someone would put their faith in him. Lord, that you would work by your spirit in, in someone's heart today who's never seen you as the holy, righteous God that you are. They've never seen themselves as a condemned, unrighteous, needy, broken sinner in need of grace. And that, God, in your amazing grace, you have seen fit to send your Son, to put him forth as the, as the, the one who would receive the wrath and the judgment that your righteousness requires. And that, God, now that righteousness has been poured out in the gracious way that we can be saved. Father, I pray for that. And, and Lord, as your church, let us just rest in that reality, but not rest in a lazy way, Lord. Let our zeal for you, let our zeal to, to reflect that righteousness, Lord, let that burn through this community. Let it burn through this country, God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.